I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. New Jersey is no longer under a stay-at-home order. It was lifted today by Governor Phil Murphy. We're taking steps today to move our state forward on our road back, but we can never forget the more than 12,000 people who will not be joining us on that road. What happens with school in New Jersey and in many other states is still an open question. Dr. Robert Zewicki is the superintendent of schools in Mount Olive Township, New Jersey, I know you've been planning for several possible scenarios and looking at the consequences of all this distance learning. So a couple of things with that. One, there's a a mental health and social emotional uh, component. You know, I have four kids myself. The youngest is in kindergarten. The eldest is in fifth grade. So I'm I'm seeing this. But, you know, kids are supposed to go to school with other kids. So there's that that social distancing has, has, you know, impacted their, their, their development of being able to collaborate and connect with other kids, interacting with their teachers. I think there's a general sense of loneliness and stress about that. Um, but then there's, you know, two recent, you know, there's a working paper um, from Brown University, UVA and NWEA that looks at basically they're, they're projecting a 50% loss in math gains and 42% in reading. So, you know, the continuation of the closure is one academically um, not the best for kids and also not social emotionally the best for kids. So how are you going to get them back into school? What's school going to look like? So how we get them back in school is one to prepare. So we basically have four options. Um, Option one is traditional school. I'm hoping that's the case. We come back, everything is normal. That being said, there's the sort of Damocles, you know, dangling over our head because in New Jersey, there's a law that with three days notice, we have to be able to go back into virtual learning. So even if we're open, this is still going to be looming over us. The second option is traditional schooling with severe social distancing. So, you know, that's hand sanitizer, one-way hallways, students eating lunch in classrooms, um, no assemblies, you know, suspending kind of a lot of those traditional things. Um, Maybe kids in high school don't switch classes. So we're we're looking at those. The third option is the one that freaks me out the, the most, and that is, um, split schedules, alternating schedule, or a hybrid model where some kids are virtual or online and some kids are in school. The main issue with that is um, it's going to put a tremendous burden on parents, the working families, because the kids are going to be home. And how do you go back to how do you go back to work if your kids are going to be home every other day or for for a portion of the day? Um, and then that also puts a tremendous amount of pressure on teachers because they have to teach the kids who are in front of them but they're also doing double duty of simultaneously teaching an online section. So that basically doubles up what we're already doing. And then the third, I'm sorry, the fourth option is continue with virtual learning. Um, and we, we've done a really good job with that. We've been really flexible. But like I said, there are the academic um, negatives to it, negative externalities and also the social emotional. So continuing that into a new year, I'm really worried about that because how do you orient a new kindergartner to kindergarten if they've never met their teacher? How do you do that virtually? It seems like every time you figure out a way to solve one of these problems, another one crops up, like the, the, the new kindergartner you just mentioned. I mean, these, these are impossible questions. They really are. And so we, we divided um, our, our plan into you know five sections, governance and operations, basically personalized learning, which is curriculum, um, looking at finance, personnel, and then uh, physical and mental health. And each of those committees made five recommendations of things we have to do for each of the four options, um, and then also a list of five concerns. Basically, what are the things that are going to keep us up at night that we don't have answers to? So we have an equal number of recommendations and an equal number of unanswered questions or concerns. Of the four models and or four possibilities that you laid out, 
Is there one that you think is the most likely to occur at this point? To be completely honest with you, um, I, I want the first option to happen. I want to go back to traditional learning. But more and more, uh, what I'm seeing is, you know, you know, uh, Israel opened up and then they had a close again. South Korea opened up and then they had a close again. Um, you know, if there's a spike that happens again, I, I fear that we'll be in virtual learning again. The other thing is we have a, a tremendous number of, you know, immunocompromised kids and staff members. What do we do about them? And then the other thing, you know, I think we've gotten a lot of attention to this, the cost of all the PPE and the cost of all the cleaning supplies. We actually donated all of our PPE and cleaning supplies to hospitals. So I only have three weeks of cleaning supplies. So if I have to clean my buildings multiple times, which would happen in, in a day during option three, I would deplete my cleaning supplies. Um, so, you know, we don't have a, a clearinghouse to get PPE and cleaning supplies. So if we run out of cleaning supplies, we're going to have to close. So unfortunately, I think it's trending towards um, the continuation of virtual learning unless something else changes. Dr. Robert Zawicki in Mount Olive Township, New Jersey. The nation's airlines are preparing for a bit of a rebound as Americans book summer vacations. There has been a slow but steady increase in the number of passengers screened at airports. ABC's Amy Robach spoke today with Ed Bastian, the chief executive of Delta. Thank you so much for being with us. And I know you know more than anyone how difficult this has been for air travel. What's the outlook for this summer with your company? We're starting to see a rebound. Uh, it's slow. Uh, the overall volume of traffic is still is considerably lower than the base that we, we experienced just just a, you know, a few months ago. Uh, but when we look at our advanced bookings for the summer, for July, for August, we're seeing real pockets of strength in uh, Sunbelt destinations in the mountain states. Uh, we're doubling the schedule that we're flying uh, in June, excuse me, in July and August, just from what we just flew in May. So it's picking up, but it's off of a very low base. Yeah, I have to full disclosure, my family and I just booked tickets for the end of August. And so for those of us who are starting to get back in the air, we have a lot of questions in terms of social distancing precautions and what Delta will be doing to keep its passengers and, of course, its employees safe. Well, our team's doing a great job, and it's great to hear that you'll be uh, you'll be traveling soon. Uh, when you when you get out and you start to travel again, you realize it's a different experience, and I think it's a much better experience. In fact, our customers are telling us it's a considerably better experience. Uh, we've implemented safety uh, protocols, whether it's distancing in the airports. We're requiring masks, you know, throughout your journey, both in the airport environment as well as when you're on board the plane. You cannot board a Delta plane without without wearing the mask. Uh, we've got uh, load factor caps, so we have guaranteed that we will not board more than 60% of our main cabin uh, at any one point. And what that does is it guarantees every middle seat in the plane is blocked and is open, so you will not be sitting next to any customer uh, for your journey. Uh, we've put new electrostatic fogging uh, machines and sprays so that before every single flight takes off, uh, the planes are completely uh cleaned and, and fogged and, and checked and inspected by our, our gate staff to make certain that they, they look basically brand new. I've been traveling throughout the experience. I can tell you it's a great experience. And the other thing is that the uh, air filtration systems on board, people don't spend enough time really understanding how clean the air is on board our planes. We recirculate and refresh with new clean air every two to four minutes throughout the entire journey, the entire air cabin uh, so, you know, what you're breathing is clean air. It comes from the vents. It gets pushed down uh, and it's collected down below. 
uh, and goes out the uh, goes out through the filtration systems with new fresh air coming in from outside the cabin. So the results that, that customers are telling us is that the experience is significantly better than they've ever seen before. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, doing a very good job in all these protective devices, they're layers of protection, not any one in isolation is sufficient. But when you put them all together, we're having great success in keeping our people and our customers safe. That's very good to hear. I am curious, though, with limited seats, how are fewer people on your planes affecting the price of tickets? Well, pricing is is lower uh, on a year over year basis. The demand is low and, and that's what drives drives pricing. So the, the goal with the load factor cap that we've put in place at Delta is not to try to push prices up, but it's actually to trigger, as to keep people safe. And then when we start to get close to that 60% load factor, that's our trigger to bring new flights in and bring uh, more planes in. And that's why we're doubling our schedule just from May, May to uh, July. Pricing overall is down. I'd say this summer you're probably going to find prices down 10 to 20% on average. Uh, uh, wherever you look across the, uh, the domestic system. So I think it's a good time and there's, there's good bargains out there. Delta CEO Ed Bastian, thank you so much for your time. We certainly wish you continued success. Thank you, Amy. With us here, as usual, ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, the World Health Organization making headlines with the statement that the asymptomatic spread of coronavirus is actually rare. This flies in the face of what we had been hearing from medical experts beforehand, that if you were asymptomatic, you were potentially still a spreader. Exactly. And this really is a perfect example, Amy, of how it's normal and to be expected to have controversial and opposing opinions in medicine and science. We're seeing it play out in living color with this pandemic. So here's what we know so far. We have to remember there is a difference between being asymptomatic and being infectious. It's not the same thing. We do know that it's possible to be infected and asymptomatic. We know that with COVID-19 and we know that with other respiratory viruses. We know that there are also many respiratory viruses that demonstrate that they are able to be spread prior to causing symptoms in someone, which may also be at play behind the WHO's statement. And we know, based on a lot of data, CDC, Iceland, various sources, big studies, that asymptomatic rates for COVID-19 can be as high as 50 percent. So that just means someone can be infected and show no symptoms. Right. And wasn't that the main reason why the CDC then decided to recommend people wear masks? Because they may be asymptomatic and spreading the virus. Precisely. That was the leading motivation behind the CDC changing their guidelines. And we've heard Drs. Fauci, Dr. Burks talk about it. So the theories now is that people without symptoms can spread COVID-19. How often that occurs is unknown. People who develop symptoms of COVID-19 have been found to be infectious one to three days before they start to develop symptoms. So again, that's a working theory. And the thing about masks is that they can act as a, as a source control, literally blocking the transmission of those potentially infectious viral particles to others. That's why the CDC changed those recommendations. All right. You've been saying from the beginning, and I think you pretty much repeat it every day, we still have a lot to learn. This is potentially one of those points. But 
What else is on the list of what we still have to learn? Well, I think when we have a World Health Organization statement that gets so much attention, it underscores that this is an evolving field. People are still learning about this virus and how it transmits. In terms of what we still don't know, we don't actually know truly how infectious SARS-CoV-2 is. We need to put a number behind that. We don't know what the infectious dose of the virus is, so how much virus it actually takes to make someone sick. And we don't know what percentage of people who are asymptomatic symptomatic can actually transmit the virus. So still a lot of research and a lot to learn. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you very much. As cities across the country entered their second week of protest, community leaders are concerned large gatherings could lead to a spike in coronavirus cases. In Richmond, Virginia, Mayor LeVar Stoney has encouraged anyone taking part in protests to get tested. So here to discuss the efforts his city is taking to tackle not one, but two crises right now is Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney. Mayor Stoney, thanks for being with us. And I know you've announced that you would get retested after marching with protesters last week. How concerned are you about that potential spike? Are there enough test kits available in your city to help combat this? Well, we, we always see more test kits, so I've always been calling for more tests from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, right now, with folks uh, in the streets uh, demonstrating against the injustices seen against black and brown people, against police brutality, and more, uh, I think that if we're going to gather mass, uh, mass gatherings in places around cities across the country, that these tests should be available. I recommend, I suggested that anyone who's been participating in any protests over the last week, please go get tested. I did. Uh, I, I went on a march uh, last Tuesday, and I plan on getting tested sometime this week. All right. And Mayor Sony, I know you've pointed out these pretty staggering numbers. Of the 25 people who have died from COVID-19 there in Richmond, at least 17 of them were African-American. How do you address a disparity like that? Yeah, well, we've always known that there's been health disparities between you know, uh, black Americans and also white Americans. But I think what COVID-19 has done is, is highlighted and spotlighted the fact that these uh, these disparities still exist. And we've always heard the phrase that uh, when uh, America catches the cold, uh, black America catches pneumonia. That is playing out in cities like mine across the country. And so what we've done uh, is created a strategy, the box-in strategy. We're providing more testing, more community testing around uh, the city. Uh, more contact tracers as well. And alongside that, the ability to isolate. You know, what we find out is you you may be living amongst your family in a two-bedroom with five or six individuals living in the same place. Very, very difficult to isolate that way. So what we're doing is using underutilized hotel space in our downtown and other places around the city to house those individuals who are in need of, of isolation. Mayor, on Thursday, your governor announced that a Robert E. Lee statue there in Richmond would be taken down this week. But just last night, a circuit court judge in your city issued a 10-day injunction barring the governor from removing the monument. What is your response? You know, I applauded the governor. I stood with the governor last week when he announced that he would remove Robert E. Lee, which is state property uh, in within the city of Richmond. And I stated that we would remove the four other Confederate monuments. Uh, these are relics of, uh, of the Jim Crow past. They're, they're uh, homage, they pay homage to, to, uh, to the lost cause. And we're not the same city we were 100 plus years ago. And I also declared that we're no longer the capital of the Confederacy as well. Uh, we figured uh, that you could pre- predict that there will be someone who would try and put a barrier up uh, in front of the governor and myself and the city council as we move forward to removing these monuments. But 
it's long overdue. Uh, if we want to take the proper steps uh, to atonement for what has occurred in the past, you have to remove the symbols of hate uh, and division. And those are the, what the Confederate monuments stand for. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today, Mayor LeVar Stoney. Thank you for being with us, and we wish you the very best. Thank you. Now, the uplifting back-in-business message from a bakery owner in Brooklyn, New York, master treat maker Marisol Morley. My name is Marisol Morley. I am the owner and founder of Tiny Kitchen Treats. We're a custom cookie company based in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm a born and raised New Yorker. Prior to the pandemic, it's going to be hard to talk about this without crying, um, it felt like we were finally starting to see the forest through the trees. As many people know, whether you're a business owner or not, it actually takes a long time to turn a profit in a small business, and we were finally getting there. It's been really hard. It's been really painful. When you own a small business, it's like your kid. And so to see your kid just struggling, not being able to grow, it's hard. It's really hard. We've been waiting on the PPP application coming through. We've been planning on reopening. And how do we reopen? Regardless of the rules that the state puts on businesses, you have to have your own conversations with your family. What are we comfortable doing? We're going to just try to keep spreading joy through the um Sunshine Project initiative that we're starting and through giving parents and families an activity to do at home and that's our goal and we're going to just put one foot in front of the other. Hi. Hi, welcome. Yep, you can grab any seat. I kept thinking about these families that have immune compromised kids and the stress they must feel. So we think that if we bring them cookie decorating kits and little decorated cookies that just giving other people a little bit of sunshine will maybe help them through a really tough time. So um, we're hoping to grow that initiative, get other companies to join in with us and donate. I'm fighting for myself, for my employees, for my family, for my followers, and for people that want to believe the American dream is real. Like I need to do it for us because we are already a dying breed and I can't let this thing take us out. All of these small businesses are someone's entire like world that is changing other people's worlds, our employees. And we need to keep small things alive so that you feel culture and, and like real businesses when you walk into small towns and big cities. Message to my other fellow small business owners is that I know we're scrappy and I know many of us are not good at asking for help, but now is the time to ask for help. You're fighting for not just yourself. And if you're tired, you gotta keep fighting. What an inspiration. We'll still ahead here on What You Need to Know. Dr. Jen Ashton is answering your coronavirus questions. And then the summer camp comeback, the YMCA, on the summer fun forecast for the nation's children. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. Is loss of sense of smell and taste enough of an indicator to assume a positive case if you can't get a test? Sadly, it's not, Amy. Um, First of all, just some mini med school terminology here. A sign of a disease is something you can see with your eyes. A symptom is something that someone feels. Loss of smell or taste and or taste fall under the neurologic or central nervous system consequences of coronavirus, but it can also be seen with other ailments and conditions. So unfortunately, it's not, as we say, pathognomonic 
of COVID-19. It's something I would follow. And if you notice it and it persists, especially if you have any other symptoms, I would I would then try to get a test. But it's not enough to assume that you have it. Got it. Got it. All right. And we all know so much of our lives, almost all of our lives have been put on Mm -hmm. hold. This next question asks, is it safe to schedule an elective surgery or should you wait? Important question. We know that most states have given the green light for elective uh, procedures, tests and surgery to resume. This is a decision that people should have with their surgeon, as always, weigh the risks versus the benefits. As someone who does elective surgery, I will tell you that the hospitals are not just doubled down on infection control, tripled and quadrupled down. So it may be, ironically, one of the safer places to be right now. That actually makes a lot of sense. All right. As we're all seeing states reopen, This next question asks, should you avoid self-serve food and beverage stations? There's really no data to suggest that this is a particularly high-risk activity or behavior. We have to remember that COVID-19 is not a food-borne illness. Its primary route of transmission is, again, respiratory. So what you're really talking about is contact exposure there with those viral particles or fomites. Um, You know, and it's not the only pathogen that we have to remember can be passed along and salad bars, those kind of things. So again, risk benefit, no official guidance on that. All right. And the next question, very simple, but a big question a lot of people have. How does contract contact tracing work? I love this question, and we could literally discuss it for the whole hour. But in basics, this is predicated on identifying someone who has just tested positive and then asking that person, doing a a little interview, how many people have you been in contact with over the last two weeks? Do you remember the people you've come in contact with in two weeks? I definitely don't. Um, So there are a lot of logistical issues here. There are safety concerns for the person doing the contact tracing because you want to be doing this remotely, not up close to someone who's obviously exposed and then may be sick or contagious. Um, And there are security issues. If someone called you and said you've been exposed, is that a scam? Is it fraud? How can you believe them? A lot of issues with that. But the biggest one, in my opinion, Amy, is it's predicated on compliance. If someone tells you you've been exposed, will you self-quarantine for 14 days as you are under the observation period? All of those unknown questions right now. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate your time. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, after nearly three months of lockdown, New York City is now taking its first steps towards reopening. But what does that mean for families, especially for parents who are now returning to work and in need of child care? Here to talk to us about what summer child care will look like as president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater New York, Sharon Greenberger, thanks so much for being with us, Sharon. And as you've heard, some 400,000 people expected to head back to work this week alone. How confident yes. are you that child care facilities are ready to reopen and take in some of these children? Well, I think we are ready. We have been thinking about this for three months now to make sure that we have the proper protocols in place to keep our children and our members, anybody coming and our staff, anybody coming through our doors safe. So we've, we've been planning for multiple scenarios and I think are ready to go. All right. Well, that I like the confidence there. Give us a sense <laughs> of how the YMCA of Greater New York has been impacted by this virus. Yes. So in New York City, we have 24 branches. We have 70 offsite locations and we have one sleepaway camp upstate. And our operations were closed on March 16th. 
we realized fairly quickly that we had to pivot to provide both virtual uh, virtual services and relief services. So we've been doing a lot. We have a number of branches that provide services for homeless New Yorkers. When this started, we reached out to local hospitals to make sure we could transfer non-COVID homeless patients to our sites to free up bed bed spaces for COVID patients. Um, we also, like many wise across the country, started providing emergency child care for healthcare workers. And we're in a health crisis and we're focused on improving health. So we launched YMCA at Home, which is a virtual platform. It's a great resource center that includes activities to remain healthy and active. It includes resources for families and students. It has Facebook Live daily classes to keep people connected. So we've found ways to pivot our work and create connections for people in different ways. I love that. What's been the response from the people who you're serving? So it's been quite amazing. We have over 200,000 people online and participating and viewing some of those resources. We also have a number of staff who are doing a lot of outreach. And we're living in a time when seniors, for example, are feeling very isolated and very lonely. So we have a whole crew that's been calling everybody on a daily basis. We have a number of staff that are working with high school seniors, for example. This is a really interesting time the last few months when they're thinking about college admissions and filling out financial aid applications. So we've been able to help them with that process, them and their families, um, and really providing as much mentoring and counseling in different ways, whether it's online, on the phone, um, just making sure that we can keep people connected. That's great. Yes, I love that creative connection. And I know we focused a lot as the summer comes up, what's going to happen with camps. So what is the status yes. on your day and your sleepaway camps as we move into yes. New York City's first phase? What, what changes will we see? Well, first of all, for a sleepaway camp, we, like many wives across the country, decided a month ago to close our sleepaway camp for the season, given the great uncertainty. There are a number of wives that are offering family camps, those that have cabins that can be dedicated mm. to a, a, a family. So there is that option in a couple of places. Normally, we would have 12,000 day campers in about 70 sites in New York City. Just an extraordinary effort. Um, we are hopeful that we'll be able to provide in-person camp. Some of it depends on the reopening process that's going on in New York City yesterday. It started yesterday, which is encouraging. And the great news is that the state released today guidelines on day camp. So we are pouring over those furiously to make sure that we can accommodate and be ready to provide um, in-person day camp. We also know that families want to plan. So we, like many others, are also planning virtual camps. We'll have that starting at the end of June so that you'll have options uh, going forward. Sharon Greenberger, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Soaring grocery prices are yet another side effect to the ongoing pandemic. According to the U.S. Labor Department, the prices of groceries grew 2.6 percent in April. That is the largest one-month increase since 1974. Here with advice on ways to keep your food budget low during this pandemic is Consumer Reports Senior Editor Toby Stanger. Toby, thanks for being with us today. So give us a sense what items specifically have spiked in price since this pandemic began. Right. So what really has gone up a lot are items like beef, pork, chicken, eggs. And um, we've heard about the news about various meat processing plants closing because of COVID concerns. So that's part of the increase. But there's a lot that goes into the increase. And so that 2.6 percent is an average 
But for these other products, it's a much higher increase. And that really affects people's budgets. Right. So then what are some ways we can save at the grocery store, given the fact that prices have gone so high? Right. So one of the things that Consumer Reports feels that we maintain very strongly is that planning before you go is going to be key. Not only will it help you create a a budget for yourself and really think about what you want to buy, but it also means you can get in and out of the store more quickly, which can be safer for you. So make a list. um, Look carefully at the various um, circulars. They're all many of the supermarkets have them online. You can see what's on sale. And you can also use various apps. There's an app called Basket where you can compare prices among the stores near you. There's something called Ibotta, which provides for couponing. There's various apps. And the stores themselves have apps that will show you what's coming up for sale. And that way you can really plan and budget before you get into the store. Yeah, research beforehand is not only going to be cost effective, but more safe. I like that. How long do you expect these price increases to last? You know, I really can't say. I did uh, speak with somebody from a grocery organization, and she wasn't going to predict either, but she did suggest that things are not necessarily leveling off yet. Uh, I did speak again with uh, someone from Basket, this uh, app, and they said that they've noticed that prices for eggs, um, excuse me, for pork, fish, chicken are up from what they were in March, but they seem to be leveling off. Beef, however, is still rising. All right. Well, those, so, it's all very important information. And it, I didn't hear you tick off vegetables rising. So that's, that's perhaps a good tip for people. To, we just got the news from the uh, Cancer Society saying that more vegetables leads to a better diet. So perhaps we can take uh, advice from them and realize that these prices can maybe help us make better habits. That seems to be the case among these Consumer Reports readers that I've talked to. And, of course, a lot of people are starting gardening. And they're even, with, you know, even on a, a, a deck. Uh, or a, um, a balcony. You can grow some things and uh, it's better for you and tastes better and it's just more fun. Agreed. I've got my garden up and running too. So Toby Stanger, thanks so much for that very much needed advice for grocery shoppers everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we turn now for Final Thoughts and Dr. Jen Ashton. Well, Amy, to circle back to what you and I were talking about earlier with the World Health Organization finding that asymptomatic spread of COVID-19 is rare, the, the story behind that story is it generated so much uncertainty, confusion, potentially eroding trust in science and medicine at a time where we really, really can't afford that. We are used to hearing that, though, in science and medicine. We hear this and then we hear that. We've heard it with aspirin recommendations. We've heard it with coffee. One day it's good for you. One day it's bad for you. We've heard it with COVID-19. We've heard it with masks. We've heard it with drugs. One wor- drug works. It doesn't work. So here's my prescription on how people can navigate this never-ending release of headlines and medical data. First, you should ask, who's the messenger? Where is this headline coming from? Where is the data coming from? Is there good evidence behind it? We say evidence-based medicine is the key. And what are the pros and cons of the findings or of the data? And we should expect this in medicine, in science. This is how that process works. This is the intellectual process. If you get a lot of doctors, which I know your brother is one of them in a room, they will have a robust and vigorous debate as well we should. So people should expect to hear this. And that's why, as we always say, this is an evolving situation. We are constantly learning and reassessing and reevaluating. How are you handling it as one of the main messengers of this 
information that does sometimes contradict itself? Well, I think in speaking to experts, we always go to the world's experts, the country's experts to get not just one insight, but multiple insights, just the way we would in a hospital setting. Um, And again, staying to the basics, having an open mind. We don't know everything in medicine and science. Anyone who says they does, they do, is not the person you should be getting your information from. And I think this story was a perfect example of that. And it catches people off guard at a time where they really want to hear consistent messaging, but medicine and science doesn't work like that. Yeah, your honest humility is also a huge part of making this all effective information that we can trust. So thank you, Dr. Jen, as always. Senior students across the country are missing out on many of the traditional big celebrations this year, but one bakery owner is dishing out quite a surprise for graduates in his town. He is giving them all cakes, and his kind gesture has set off a pretty sweet movement. Let's talk to that man who started it all. Bill Hanish, owner of the Hanish Bakery and Coffee Shop, joins us now from Minnesota. Bill, thank you so much for being with us, and tell us what inspired you to give away these free personalized cakes to all the seniors in your town. Uh, well, just community pride, really. I wanted to make sure that these kids had a graduation that was, you know, as memorable as I remember mine. And with them losing out on so many events and things throughout their senior year, I just felt like I needed to step up and, and do something for them. Well, I can only imagine what happened once word got out what you were doing. Tell us what the response was. Well, it, it was it was quite good. Uh, it, it spread from one town to the next town to, I believe, we're at, I think, 15 total towns. And, uh, yeah, it, we've actually had to turn some towns away just because we, we, we can't possibly produce that many cakes. Yeah, I mean, how many cakes are we talking about and, and how have you been able to handle so many orders all at once? Well, it's going to be close to 1,200 total cakes by the time the, the month is over. Uh, it, it's, it started with 200 and went, went from there. Uh, we were able to handle it because we, we normally handle these volumes, and right now our, our volumes on a lot of things are very low. So, you know, we just worked with the schools and set up a schedule, and my employees are absolute rock stars and got them all done. Mm, what flavor are those cakes? I'm just, are, are they all different kinds of flavors? I need details. Well, if they're coming here from Red Wing, you know, my, my hometown here, they get a choice of chocolate, white, or marble. Uh, for other schools, we have kind of went with a very just a white cake just to keep it simple for not only us, but also for the teachers and the faculty that are handing out these cakes. Near 1,200 cakes you will have made. How does it make you feel to bring so many smiles to people who need it more than ever right now? Uh, it's awesome. You know, to see the thank you cards that we have received from all over the country that, uh, you know, people wanting our cakes from all over the country, but just to go to some of these smaller towns, maybe it's like 15 kids graduating and just really, you know, you see them get the cake and the smile just, lights them up and it's it's awesome just to you know and the community support that it's brought is is even even more special to me in this time right now oh well that is amazing bill hannish of hannish bakery and coffee shop thank you so much what an incredible way to uplift your community at a time when we all needed it more than ever thank you thank you very much
And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.